Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, moderator of these forums and minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. Seven times a year of a Thursday noon, we lend this podium to a well-tuned voice of conscience, well-schooled in his or her discipline, and well-focused on a current issue within that discipline. We open the door to all comers in person without charge or over the air, and we go at it for an hour with a 30-minute statement by the guest of the day and 30 minutes of questions and answers. Our guest this day is Dr. Michael E. DeBakey. Dr. DeBakey is Chancellor of Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and Chairman of its Department of Surgery. He is also Director of the National Heart and Blood Vessel Research and Demonstration Center in Houston. Our guest is best known for his pioneering efforts in the treatment of cardiovascular diseases. He is widely thought of as the world's premier cardiovascular surgeon. He has played a major role in the development of an artificial heart. His Dacron artificial arteries are now used throughout the world. A colleague and friend of his here in the Twin Cities says that Michael DeBakey has kept his nose to the grindstone so long that he's worn out the grindstone. <laughs> the way he keeps teaching and inventing and writing and operating, and not least of all, perhaps most of all, caring for his patients. Well, Dr. DeBakey is here with us today to grind away at a subject he's well equipped to address and which all of us ponder with more or less intensity ethical issues in cardiovascular diseases. Welcome, Dr. DeBakey. We're glad you're here. Let me wire you for sound. It would help if I didn't step on the wire. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, First, let me express my grateful appreciation for the opportunity of being with you. I notice uh, here on the podium there's a Bible, and perhaps uh, I might find a lot in that that I could talk about, because uh, in a sense, uh, much of what we regard as ethical standards are in this Bible. I was telling earlier that I was raised as an Episcopalian, largely because my parents were Episcopalians in a real small town, and uh, I, uh, I got to know the Bible pretty well because they insisted that I uh, go to Sunday school regularly, and uh, uh, while I don't have too much uh, opportunity to spend much time in church today, I always say that I spent so much time in church when I was a young boy that I, uh, I, I now can live on the interest. 
I told someone earlier today that uh, I, I, while I have many friends who are Presbyterians at home, uh, I've stayed in the Episcopal Church largely because uh, I like the way they treat me. As long as I pay my dues, they leave me alone. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about some ethical issues, and the reason I chose cardiovascular diseases is because it happens to be an area in which I feel comfortable in, but the truth of the matter is this applies to many areas of medicine today. We're making tremendous uh, advances, and these are creating some ethical issues. Now, because of the uh, fact that I'm limited in the amount of time I have to talk about this, I've decided to, to uh, put it into a form which I can read and makes it, uh, I think, better for you, and I don't waste as much time digressing, even though I'm sure as the time goes on here, I'll be digressing. The, the remarkable advances achieved by medical research, uh, particularly in the past few decades, have not only extended the life of patients, but has also enhanced the quality of that life. Americans, aware of these unprecedented developments, have come to expect, indeed, to demand high-technology health care. But the new ultra-sophisticated techniques that have extended so many lives have greatly magnified, magnified the cost of health care and have raised wrenching ethical and social questions. To put the current controversy in perspective, let me review a few of the developments in medicine during the last half of the 20th century. Not only has research yielded effective vaccines for the control of poliomyelitis, measles, and other infectious diseases, but it has also produced a wide spectrum of antibiotics to control serious infections and has developed drugs that have diminished the need for custodial care of the emotionally and mentally disturbed and reduce the disability and death rates from hypertension, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and numerous other serious illnesses. During the last 15 years or so, the death rate, for example, from coronary artery disease has diminished by well over 30%. And the death rate from high blood pressure has diminished even more than that. The death rate from strokes has diminished by more than 50%. The total death rate from all cardiovascular diseases during this same period has decreased by more than 27%, and this is significantly greater, this is a significantly greater decrease than for all other diseases combined. Calcium channel blockers, cimetidine, and cephalosporins are among recent agents that offer new hope for patients. From the research laboratory, also have come new, highly effective, and precise diagnostic instruments such as arteriography, echocardiography, ultrasound, electromagnetic <coughs> blood flowmetry, CT scanners, and nuclear magnetic resonance imaging. The development of the heart-lung machine, another product of research, 
opened a new field of surgery that permits the correction of cardiovascular diseases in victims previously doomed to death. I might say since I'm here in Minneapolis that I should pay tribute to the people at the University of Minnesota who helped pioneer the heart-lung machine. Uh, though the original uh, investigator was a man by the name of John Gibbon from Philadelphia, the people here in research at the University of Minnesota were among those who pioneered the development, clinical development of the machine. More than 80% of congenital heart disease, for example, are now correctable completely. And these people can look forward to leading a normal life. When I was a medical student, there was no such thing. In fact, we only had one lecture on heart disease, give you some idea how little was done for heart disease. We have devised operations for the success successful treatment of previously fatal aneurysmal and occlusive diseases. Dacron grafts now routinely replace diseased arteries, and bypass operations for coronary artery disease have become common. Research has also yielded new knowledge about the risk factors in heart disease, and as a result of early detection, new therapeutic techniques, and health education, we have been able to reduce the cardiovascular death rate uh, from 1964 to 1968 by more than 39 percent. Organ replacement has permitted the transplantation of corneas, kidneys, liver, lung, hearts, and artificial devices have been developed in the research laboratory to permit hip joint replacement and implantation of pacemakers and heart valves. The prognosis for many forms of cancer has brightened significantly as a result of research. Some of these diagnostic and therapeutic procedures are costly, but when we evaluate their cost-benefit, we must consider how many such patients have moved from the tax relief roles to the tax-paying roles. Some medical innovations have been spectacular, but they have prompted a rash of problems, economic, social, moral, and ethical. Can we afford them? How do we control the escalating costs? How do we provide the new services for those who cannot afford to pay? Now, in this country, there's something on the order estimated, something like 37 million people in this country who have no insurance and cannot afford to pay. How do we reconcile society's ever-increasing demands and expectations of medicine with its declining level of support? What role should medical and professional judgments play in ethical dilemmas? How do we define the difference between prolonging life and prolonging death? Let us consider these economic and ethical questions in sequence. The increased cost of health care in recent years has been widely publicized, but the various factors contributing to the increase are not as well known. The federal government has assumed more and more of the health care budget burden. Until 1967, when the new public health programs took effect, primarily Medicare, federal expenditures for health care amounted to less than 6% of the GNP. But by 1985, they represented almost 11%, almost doubled, or a total of $425 billion. That's $1,721 per individual. 
Contributing to the increase are the extensive federal regulations, and they're increasing, the specialized personnel required to implement them, and the so-called defensive medicine that burgeoning malpractice suits have forced physicians to practice with the increasing use of various tests. It's estimated that this amounts to over $7 billion of the total cost. The demographic changes in our nation have had a serious impact on the cost of health care. Americans are living longer. The life expectancy of a child born in 1986 is around 75 years. In 1900, the odds of reaching 100 years of age were only about 30 in 100,000, whereas today there are 1,150 per 100,000 a 40-fold increase. Centenarians may exceed one million by 2050. The elderly represent an increasing proportion of our population. The number beyond 65 years is predicted to grow from 25 million today to 30 million by 1990. Because the elderly have more chronic and debilitating illnesses, they require more frequent and longer hospitalization than younger patients. The use of more sophisticated equipment and more intensive nursing care. In 1982, 20% of the $49 billion Medicare bill was spent for the care of patients in the last six months of life. In 1985, Medicare paid $70.5 billion to the elderly and disabled, and payments of 70, nearly $75 billion are projected for 1986. As the proportion of the elderly continues to rise, Medicare, Medicaid costs will increase, and we shall have to decide as a society how much we are willing to appropriate for that purpose. As you know, the uh, administration has proposed an increase and already there's a great deal of criticism about it. In a country that prides itself on equality of treatment for all, the, this decision will not be easily reached. The world cheers when a new medical advance seems to hold promise for the ill or handicapped, whether it be a mechanical heart, an artificial limb for amputees, a microcomputer system to mobilize the paralyzed, or a futuristic bionic man. But we always express shock when we learn of the cost of these devices in operation. Since inflation has multiplied the cost of food, housing, clothing, and entertainment, is it realistic to expect medical research and health care to remain unaffected? And speaking of entertainment, Apparently, we're, as a society, perfectly willing to pay millions of dollars for entertainment and entertainers, but very little for some of the needy requirements for medical care for individuals who can't afford it. In 1972, the cost of kidney dialysis was $250 million, whereas a decade later, 10 years, it, it cost the government one billion dollars. How will we distribute the limit, limited funds we are willing to assign to health care? Will we, as in England, 
and other of the Western European countries refused to subsidize the cost of dialysis for patients beyond 62 years of age. Now, that may shock you to know that in most of the European, Western European countries, a person beyond the age of 62 cannot get dialysis because he's beyond the age that they've limited it to. You can imagine what would happen if a patient requiring dialysis went to the dialysis center here at the university hospital and they told him, well, you're just too old, we're not going to give it to you. You know, it would be on the evening news. People would be outraged. But it's accepted over there. In this country, cardiac transplantation, which in 1980 cost an average of $110,000 per patient for hospital and ancillary service, is now generally restricted to patients under 50 years of age. I might say that we have modified that now, at least in our institution and some of the other institutions in this country where they're doing quite a few cardiac transplants, the cost has gone down to closer to fifty or sixty thousand uh, dollars and the, the age has gone up. Our oldest patient is now now sixty three years of age. If the decision is not to be on the basis of age, will we use as a criterion the potential social worth worth of the patient? And if so, how and by whom will this be judged? These are, of course, non-medical decisions, which in a democracy such as ours are generally made by consensus. An artificial heart implantation kept Bonnie Clark alive for 112 days, tethered to a 375-pound console that supplied the power for his mechanical heart. During that time, we read of the various complications he endured, the technical failure with the pump that required reoperation the pneumonia, the nosebleeds, the convulsions, and the disorientation, the infections, and the depression. Subsequent patients with artificial heart implantation met essentially the same fate. Were the experiments worth it? The answer will vary depending upon whom you ask. Each of us may have different answers depending on whether we are asked the question when we are in good health or when we are facing imminent death. The artificial heart is not yet sufficiently refined to sustain the kind of life most of us want. But if or when it is perfected, how will candidates be selected? It's estimated that there may be something on the order of 15 to 20,000 individuals in this country that could use an artificial heart, should it be that readily available. And it's estimated that that would cost over $6 billion. The question then is, how are we going to decide how to pay for all of this? Should the government underwrite these procedures for those who cannot afford them? Or are, there funds best are these funds best distributed among a wider segment of our society who need routine medical care? As I said a moment ago, 37 million people in this country, it's estimated, do not have insurance and do not have adequate medical care, do not have access to adequate medical care. The answer to these questions will come from the general public. Consider another procedure of proved therapeutic value. More than 100,000, almost 200,000 coronary artery bypass operations 
are performed in the United States annually, as I say, almost 200,000 last year, at a cost of 15 to $20,000 per operation. But any assessment of cost must take into account the value of the product, the number of patients who return to gainful employment and a normal life. Studies indicate that 50 to 90% of patients return to work within three to four months after operation. Uh, in a recent study, which uh, we're getting ready to publish, uh, an analysis of patients who operated on more than 10 years ago, 50% of the patients uh, are still working at the end of 10 years and doing absolutely normal work and about 25% doing part-time work. With disability or death their only alternative operation, the results must be considered not only medically but also e economically advantageous. If the cost of an operation is $15,000 and the patient resumes employment at $30,000 per year, in about six months he will have contributed the cost of his operation in social productivity and thereafter he will continue to contribute to our resources instead of withdrawing from them by social security and so on. Uh, the economic cost of cardiovascular disease in our country is estimated in 1986 to be almost $79 billion. More than 177,000 workers with cardiovascular disease were granted Social Security disability in 1975, representing 30% of all such benefits. We must consider these factors when evaluating various treatments. The medical community continues to receive divergent, indeed contradictory, mandates. Provide the best available health care for all, but keep the costs down. The dilemma really is insoluble. High technology medicine has also created disturbing ethical questions, but those are the price we pay for modern medical miracles. The ethical dilemmas raised by new scientific and technological developments seem increasingly daunting. A case awaiting judgment in New York concerns a surrogate mother who, having signed a contract to carry a baby for remuneration, decided after the baby's birth that she did not want to surrender the baby. This issue is really awesome. Surrogate motherhood carries a host of ethical and legal questions about the rights of the participants, including the right of the child to know the identity of its biologic parents when the father and mother are paid donors and the woman who carried the child is a surrogate. Will human humans begin to create children in surrogate mothers by selecting a biologic father and mother with certain traits but unknown to each other, just as we do in cattle, for example. We transplant organs and implant mechanical devices to sustain life. We may, however, need to define life more precisely. Did the artificial heart sustain William Schrader's life? or did the stroke and other complications he suffered deprive him of the freedom to live and the right to die? If a person cannot maintain his human identity, 
cannot participate satisfactorily in the social and natural world, cannot love and be loved by family and friends, cannot even understand what is being done to him, is his life being sustained or only his vital functions? These are weighty philosophical problems and we as a society must address them. Most people agree that the benefits from any critical intervention must balance or exceed the burdens and the judgment of the patient or his surrogate. If the patient cannot tolerate the life that ensues from heroic life-sustaining measures, should they be terminated? The ultimate question is age-old. What is life? The Greeks, the medieval, and the Enlightenment savants all wrestled with that question. Today, the bioethicists continue to ponder it. I had uh, recently a patient whom I had operated upon sometimes previously, about 20 years ago, who now is 90 years of age, came into the emergency room uh, with a stroke. She was unconscious in coma, and they immediately put a intratracheal tube down and put her on the ventilator to sustain her. Now during the night, that night, she had a cardiac arrest and the resident who was on duty uh, tried to, to resuscitate her and successfully resusc resuscitated the cardiac function. Not her, she was still comatose. And when I asked him next morning, why did he do this? He said, well, he thought it was his duty to keep her alive. And I said, well, do you think she is alive? Well, he said, uh, she's, uh, her functions are, are, are active and uh, we don't have any evidence that she's dead. And I said, well, the question really is, is she alive? She's comatose, 90 years of age, and you're simply sustaining her vital functions. That afternoon, her heart, she had another heart attack, a heart arrest, and died. But that illustrates some of the conflicts we have and the ethical issues that are involved. What criteria will we use to allow the withdrawal of life-sustaining measures from a severely deformed or terminally ill person? Physicians face daily the conflict between the interests of an individual patient and those of society, a conflict that remains insoluble except on an individual basis. Despite the strongly held opinions for and against costly high-technology health care for the newborn, the gravely ill, the handicapped, and the aged, neither ethicists nor economists and neither physicians nor politicians have devised satisfactory guidelines for, for providing every citizen with optimal but economical health care. As you know, in some situations, this has actually gone to the court, and the judge makes the decision. And he knows about as much about health care as the man in the moon. A crucial need today is for our society to bring its expectations regarding health care in line with the real realities of the economics and of present-day diagnosis, diagnosis and treatment. 
Unlike Marcus Welby, Hawkeye Pierce, and other television make-believe practitioners, the knowledge and skills of real physicians are finite. Moreover, hospitalization today, like other commodities, is more costly than previously because it requires more specialized instrumentation and more highly trained personnel. In one of our uh, cardiology laboratories, uh, not long ago we were showing the uh, equipment to some individuals and uh, foreign individuals traveling through, and he asked, how much does this equipment cost, which was in this room, small room, and the administrator told him that uh, the total cost of the equipment in that room was two million dollars. This is not to say that we must not make every effort to reduce costs when feasible, for that is our responsibility. But if we lower health charges below costs, the quality of health care administered will have to decline with a reduction in the use of precise, efficient, high-technology diagnostic and therapeutic procedures. We have ample evidence of these adverse effects in other countries. In some European countries, for example, there is a backlog of hundreds, indeed thousands of patients awaiting coronary artery bypass or hip replacement, for example. In one of the best hospitals in Sweden, the num I was over there last November, the number of patients awaiting coronary bypass was three years. Uh, in one of the uh, places where hip replacement originated, uh, the, the, uh, the period of delay for hip replacement is five years. Well, the basic reason for that, of course, is not that the, peop the doctors and the, and the personnel, medical personnel, aren't, in, aren't anxious to, to give them immediate attention, but because uh, the government only gives a certain amount of money and uh, that has to last the whole year. So if they run out at the end of six months, they'd have to close the hospital. So they're, 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 they're on a, a certain financial uh, restrictions in terms of how many patients they can take care of uh, per day. And maybe, for example, at this hospital they, in Sweden, they only can do two cases a day. Uh, in our own hospital, for example, we, we do nearly 30 a day. Uh, so that's, that's part of the problem. Well, obviously, many of the patients who've got to wait three to five years for this kind of, of uh, high-technology care are not going to be alive at the end of that period of time. And apparently, that's part of the, uh, part of the strategy. Uh, you know, you can keep the costs down if you, if you don't have to, if they die, and you don't have to take care of them. One, one of the ways to keep the costs down. Criticism has been leveled at the medical profession both, I'm talking about here, both for excessive use of diagnostic and therapeutic interventions to forestall death in the critical ill and for withholding such measures. Physicians, however, are trained to use sound clinical criteria in such judgments and they make decisions daily not to order certain laboratory studies and not to use certain types of therapy. The problem is that physicians, like all mortal beings, are not omniscient. They often cannot know with certainty which patients will live or fully recover as a result of a certain maneuver, 
and which will not. And they cannot always determine precisely when a patient is dying. Their knowledge and training, both medical and ethical, however, equip them to deal with such matters better than bureaucrats, lawyers, judges, or others who are not clinically trained. I used up my time. <laughs> yeah. I only got another minute. Of course, none of our present therapeutic procedures, valuable as they are today, is the ultimate answer to the high mortality rate from heart disease and other illnesses. Rather, the answer lies in prevention. And the key to prevention is research. Like everything else, research is more expensive today than previously. And because it deals with the unknown, it is fraught with blind alleys, dilemmas, and frustrations. But if we expect to uncover the causes of human disease and disability, and thus to prevent them, we must be willing to support research. Let us also be reminded that America's system of medical care still provides the finest quality of services to the greatest number of people. Our system was developed largely through the private sector with the increasing involvement of the government only in recent years. Such intrusion means not only greater regulations, but also less freedom of choice and some disruption of the physician-patient relationship, which has been a basic and salutary ingredient of our healthcare system. Finally, we should probably not reduce the cost of healthcare in any substantial degree until we educate each citizen to take personal responsibility for maintaining his health instead of seeking to repair it after he becomes ill. Such a shift from treatment to prevention would affect significant savings. That shift is dependent not only on the maintenance of adequate diet, rest, and exercise, and on avoidance of such known precipitating factors of disease as smoking, uh, excessive drinking, drug addiction, obesity, and adverse environmental factors, but on our willingness as a society to support research in the prevention of disease. The axiom, axiom that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure was never truer than in the health economics today. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Dr. DeBakey, rather than uh, dwell on the fact that we Presbyterians expect our parishioners to vote both with their checks and their feet, <laughs> I'm going to take some delight in reading a quote from Hearts, the book Hearts by Thomas Thompson. On a Christmas not too many years back, he writes, Dr. DeBakey was making rounds when he suddenly stopped to complain, where are all the residents? Where are the interns and students? Nobody wants to help me. Nobody cares anything about medicine anymore. The resident accompanying him said, Sir, they're all at home celebrating the birth of another great man. <laughs> and it's recorded that you laughed. <laughs> Let me remind the radio audience that you are indeed uh, listening in on the Westminster Town Hall Forum. 
that our speaker today has been and is Dr. Michael DeBakey, who is currently Chancellor of Baylor College of Medicine and Chairman of its Department of Surgery. We are absolutely delighted to report that the Medtronic Foundation is our co-sponsor today. Now, there is a moment when those who must leave may do so, also a moment that cards, yellow cards with your questions, might be passed to the aisles. We'll just take a moment for that, but only a moment. Well, Dr. Dave Bakey, if you would return to the podium, perhaps we could uh, at least get started. Uh, I was struck this morning in quickly going through the paper to see a full-page ad uh, presented by one hospital regarding its cardiac care services. Would you care to comment at all on the, on the competitive aspect of, of this uh, kind of medical care? Yes, well, there's no question about the fact that uh, competition has increased, and uh, to some extent I think it's, it's desirable. I'm a little concerned about this kind of, of, of means of competing, uh, in, in medicine particularly. Uh, it, the terms that are used disturb me somewhat too. More and more you hear the terms marketing, for example, uh, in this competitive environment. And uh, I think we're, we're moving away from some of the uh, old and maybe traditional values in medicine that uh, I think were extremely important in maintaining the, the uh, integrity of the profession. Uh, I, don't, I don't regard medicine as a business. I think it's very important that we uh, not use money as the bottom line, so to speak, in what we do. Uh, for a long time, uh, and certainly during my early stages, in medicine, uh, I was brought up with the belief that you, as a doctor, should take care of any patient, no matter what his uh, monetary worth might be. Uh, you gave him the same kind of, of care that you'd give to somebody who was wealthy. Uh, right now, however, more and more, there's this increasing effort to uh, to market the uh, physicians as well as the hospital's uh, resources. And in doing so, it seems to me that we're moving away from, from these ideals that we originally had in medicine. And my concern is that uh, the quality of, of health care will suffer uh, by this kind of competition. Uh, that is uh, competition that ultimately is is going to be based upon whether or not it's profitable. Part of the reason for this ad, obviously, is to increase the uh, patient uh, load, so to speak, in the hospital, and to try to attract more patients by that means. And if it doesn't work, then uh, uh, profits will suffer, 
and, uh, and that, that will lead them to doing other things that uh, might reduce the quality of their health care. So I'm, I'm sort of concerned by this kind of uh, development, to be perfectly honest with you. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would never engage in anything like this, and our institution certainly are not going to do that. Thank you. There is, and this is from the audience, there is a surplus of all surgeons in the United States. Could you say something comforting to the young aspiring surgeons in the, in the audience, the young surgeons in the audience? Yeah, well, I, I would only say this, that uh, while there may be an overall surplus uh, of surgeons and an overall surplus of physicians in general, certainly there's going to be a much greater surplus over the next, uh, up to, I think, 2050 in this country. Uh, we, we expect within the next 10 years to have uh, a doubling of the number of doctors to uh, unit ratio uh, of the population. Uh, however, and I think this is important to keep in mind, uh, as you get nearer and nearer the top of the pyramid, uh, there's less and less uh, competition up there. And I would say that there's always room at the top. And I think that's the most comforting thing I can tell you. Thank you. Let's see if I can find the next one. As a former historian who was an impressionable teenager when you did your first transplant, could you express your feelings on the rank position of the Houston Medical Center, for example, compared to Minnesota's Mayo Clinic? <laughs> well, I have, I have great admiration for the Mayo Clinic. I know a lot of the surgeons physicians up there and uh, they certainly they certainly do good work i see mm -hmm. uh, i saw yesterday in the papers where they had made the decision at the mayo clinic to resume doing heart transplants uh -huh. uh, so uh, i can see that uh, they've been uh, deliberating about this much longer than we had Another question from the floor. As death rates from infectious diseases, cardiovascular events, and cancer decline, what causes of death will take their place? Well, for the present anyway, um, they're still causing death. So we don't have to be concerned about what's going to take their place. I mean, uh, <laughs> we've reduced the death rate. That doesn't mean we have eliminated it. Uh, what we've done, of course, is in any given individual extended his life uh, beyond what it would have been had the intervention not taken place, even though, let's say we do a coronary bypass and he lives 10 years uh, after the coronary artery bypass, he may still die of a heart attack, mm -hmm. you see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we haven't yet eliminated these things. That's what I was trying to get to, and perhaps I didn't word it as well when I said about prevention. Arteriosclerosis or atherosclerosis, so-called hardening of the arteries, is the most common cause of this, what we call heart disease or heart attacks, and indeed the most common form of cardiovascular disease. And we don't know the cause of arteriosclerosis or atherosclerosis. We have identified these risk factors but 
let's not confuse them with the cause. Uh, smoking, for example, is a risk factor, uh, and we should eliminate smoking, but that will not stop you from having a heart attack. Same, with, same is true of cholesterol. High cholesterol is a risk factor, but almost half the patients that we operate upon for coronary artery disease have cholesterol levels that are normal, perfectly normal. Uh, their risk factors because they increase the chances of your having, you know, put you in a greater risk, but they don't cause the disease. We don't know the etiology. Well, this is one of the recent examples. You see, once we knew the cause in the virus, we were able ultimately to develop a vaccine that virtually eliminated the disease. That's what I mean by getting to the cause and doing the research that leads us to it. For some reason, what you've just said reminds me of my own problem some years ago when I confided to a group of ministers that I'd had a serious health problem that had nothing to do with uh, cardiovascular. And afterwards, he comforted me at the cash register. He said, Don, I wouldn't worry about that. He said, I know a fellow who had your problem. He died of a heart attack two years later. <laughs> <laughs> Great comfort. <laughs> Would your opinion on prolonging life functions as opposed to life be any different for a newborn or a 90-year-old? Well, I, I think that it's, it, it, it's important to, to individualize the case in all of these, and I tried to make that point. Uh, and it, it does, it would make a difference if the, if the infant uh, had a chance to recover from whatever condition was by surgical intervention or medical intervention or whatever, uh, or by, let's say, sustaining that individual's life by artificial means temporarily, as we do sometimes in, in prematures, uh, to, to get them over that period. Obviously, under those circumstances, if there's a chance that that child can recover and lead a normal life, you you would give priority to that, certainly, and it's worthwhile. However, let's, uh, let's take the case of a, uh, a, a very deformed infant whose deformity is such that there's no possibility that that child could lead a normal life, although you could, by intervention, let's say, sustain that life for a short period of time. Now, under those circumstances, the dilemma is, do you apply this high technology effort to keep this child alive for a few months, uh, possibly a few years, uh, and, to, and, and, and requiring all the time pretty intensive medical care? Uh, and perhaps, uh, in, in some sense, uh, causing the child to suffer in terms of the injections, the insertion of various uh, needles and so on into that child, and possibly from an operation. Question then is, are you really uh, achieving uh, the goal that you'd like to achieve in medicine, and that is to relieve uh, the condition, uh, certainly relieve suffering, and to prolong life? And that's why I said we need a good definition of life. I don't think life merely means uh, keeping a vital organ going, whether it's uh, kidneys or the lungs 
uh, of the heart. Another question. Are you suggesting that only a productive life is a life worth saving? Uh, well, again, you see, I'm not judging, and I certainly would not judge whether a life is going to be productive or not. That is not my criterion, because uh, you might save this individual uh, and have him grow up to be a criminal. Uh, that is not for us to judge especially at that time. But I think it is important to make the distinction between a condition that is not correctable, uh, that allows the infant, let's say, to survive a few months or even a few years, uh, but not uh, to, to achieve uh, maturity. Uh, that is, uh, to, to, uh, to a gainful maturity where you, the individual can be relieved of the suffering and at the same time uh, have the benefits of, of living uh, to that age. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we should judge whether it's productive or not. Mm -hmm. In the same fashion we, we treat individuals, uh, they, you know, I have had to operate on criminals but I didn't make the judgment uh, whether or not they should be operated upon. The judgment was made by the condition that they had and by the request that was made upon me to take care of them. Perhaps this fits in. Is it ethical to perform transplantation on patients who have caused their own disease through chronic abuse? Well, if we use that criteria, and you see, we would be limited in treating a lot of people. <laughs> I, I have had patients come to me who, uh, who require, let's say, a coronary bypass operation, tell me that uh, they had come from some other place and the doctors there refused to operate on them unless they stopped smoking. And they said, you know, I was unable to stop smoking and I'm still unable to stop smoking. I hope you'll operate on me. Well, I did operate on them, and I would not refuse to, uh, not to operate on them. Same, the same is true with an individual who might, let's say, be uh, obese. I would not refuse uh, to treat them medically because they've allowed themselves to become obese. Uh, however, I, as I said in my statement, I think it's very important that we emphasize to in our educational program, that the individual must assume some responsibility for his own health care. And the application of uh, certain preventive measures that we know would be useful, and in abandoning certain types of uh, behavioral activities, such as drug abuse and, and smoking and things of that sort. Please comment on feasibility of an ethics committee to represent a cross-section of the community and assist the physician or physicians to arrive at ethical medical decisions, especially weighty ones. Yes, well, uh, that's a good question, and uh, while I didn't refer to it in my talk, I might say that most institutions such as I, like ours do have such committees, and uh, we even have a department of bioethics now. And you know, a whole new uh, type of, of uh, career has been established, uh, the bioethicist. When I was a medical student, uh, 
the term was, was, was not yet made. But now we do have people who uh, are devoting their whole life work to this kind of activity. And I think that they are very useful. We use them all the time. Uh, if we have a, a, an issue, a critical ethical issue in a patient and his family, uh, we call the bioethicists to come in and sometimes the committee to help us come to a proper judgment. Uh, so that I think there is now room for them. And th these committees do have lay people on them, sometimes members of the community. Mm -hmm. I had a cardiac bypass two years ago. I recently participated in the Pritikin, P-R-I-T-I-K-E-N, Longevity Center in Santa Monica, California. What is your opinion of this program, signed 70-year-old woman? Well, this, uh, this program is uh, uh, well designed for, let's say, uh, sort of an acute effort to uh, bring to the attention of the individual some of these principles, uh, such as weight loss, uh, low cholesterol, a, a diet that uh, is pretty difficult to, to uh, live on and sustain on. And most people who participate in this for a week or two weeks or longer, which is very costly incidentally, uh, usually don't, don't sustain that lifestyle after they leave, not belong. It's very difficult to live on it. Uh, I, I do think, however, it does emphasize the importance of some of these things I've already referred to as risk factors and the control of them. And it's helpful in that sense. Whether or not you can, can you sustain it is up to you. Um, but it does, in, in other words, if you, if, if you don't have the money to pay for that, you don't need to go to, one of, to the Pritchett Institute for that purpose. Any good doctor can give you the same uh, advice for much less money. <laughs> How does the question of liability and medical malpractice fit into your thesis? Well, as I said a moment ago, it's estimated that something on the order of $7 billion, uh, just an in, in increase in insurance premiums, has come about through the increased litigation that's taking place. Now, uh, there, there are now something on the order of perhaps 10 times more lawsuits than even five or six years ago. So each year there has been an increase in the number of lawsuits. The insurance companies have increased the premiums, insurance premiums, to the point in some places where they have driven the doctors out of that area or the, the doctors have stopped practicing. For example, in some parts of the country, uh, the insurance premiums for liability has reached the point where in obstetrics the doctors have just quit doing obstetrics. Uh, I think it is a growing problem and one that I think has reached virtually a crisis and something's going to have to be done about it. What is interesting is of course the fact that, uh, that, the, that only about uh, 25 to 30 percent of these suits are successful. Uh, a great majority are not successful, but they do cost money. 
Uh, and uh, the litigation is not only costly in that sense, but the insurance company has to pay the cost of the lawyers and so on. So it, it is a, a growing problem that uh, I think needs to have some, uh, needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And there is some effort being made in some states to address it. They've had some so-called tort reform laws that have helped some, but it's a national problem. And it's not gonna go away. Uh, you know, it's, it's a deep pocket problem, as they say. A question, what has been your most satisfying achievement? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm asked that from time to time, and uh, I, I, get, I have difficulty in answering that because uh, your most satisfying achievement is what, what takes place now. You know, it's not very satisfying uh, what you did 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And so you keep looking ahead to what you can do next. Uh, if one would ask me specifically about my overall activities, I would have to say that the training of cardiovascular surgeons has been one of the most satisfying achievement. Uh, whether it's the most, I don't know, but certainly it is one of the most since I've trained something like 500 of them all mm. across the world. Marvelous. I began with a uh, quote from Mr. Thompson's book. I think I'll move toward the end with another. <laughs> DeBakey asks six doctors to describe him and they become six blind men telling of the elephant. <laughs> there are the charming DeBakey, the tyrannical DeBakey, the gracious DeBakey, the political DeBakey, the despot DeBakey, and the original healer DeBakey. Well, given this hour that we've spent together, we just have to come down hard on charming and gracious DeBakey, <laughs> and you can look upon this hour as a very satisfying achievement. Those are the only, <laughs> only two I recognize. Thank you. Thank you.